Welcome to episode 255, the penultimate episode of Design Details. I'm Bryn Jackson. Wait, it's not. You're going to keep going. The penultimate episode in which... The Bryn Ultimate episode. The Bryn Ultimate episode of Bryn's... The penultimate Bryn Ultimate Of Bryn's participation. That's not what's important. We talked to Charlie Sutton today. Charlie Sutton is a design manager at Facebook, currently working on the video and games teams. Uh, We've wanted to have him on the show for a long time. I'm glad we made it happen. long, long time. And after several recommendations and uh, one... I hung out with him at South By and I was like, we need to have this guy on the show. And uh, a fortuitous direct message thread. We finally got him in the studio uh, to talk about design, managing... Uh, how the fuck he ended up doing what he's doing today. It's a it's a story. It's a story. And you're going to hear about that in a minute. But first, we want to thank our sponsor. Oh, and we make some jokes about Australia. <laughs> did we? Yeah, we did. It's very relevant. I don't remember what they were, to be honest. All of that and more coming up after... We recorded this three days ago, after, and I just don't remember what it was. Yeah. <laughs> after a quick thanks to our, our sponsor. And that is Abstract. Abstract is time wizardry for your team that will help you uh go back in time go back and see all the different versions you took it's it's really like diverging timelines it's like narrative branching Mm -hmm. for design yeah Yeah. version control choose your own design adventure version control is one of the greatest uh developments in modern product development whoa whoa but it's been around for a while. And the greatest developments in development. In development. Uh, and designers are just now catching up to the magic that is the ability to collaborate together on a single source We're of a truth. We're slow and picky people. We are. But Abstract is filling the void. Abstract is a platform for modern design teams to work together in a version-controlled hub for your design files, which means that you and your team can finally collaborate together on a single file without worrying about conflicting copies, duplicating the files, uh, someone making a mistake and never being able to revert the changes. It lets you actually work together with confidence that the thing that you're designing is safe and secure uh, can be uh, reverted at any given point in time. Uh, And you can collaborate more easily together because of that. It also lets you collaborate with stakeholders that aren't designers. They can jump in and comment and share thoughts on your designs as you're going because Abstract houses your design files in that source of truth uh, so people don't need to install products like Sketch on their computer if they're not a designer. This is a, a huge way to change the way that your team is productive together. It's going to save you uh, millions of of calories of headaches so think of the calories Calories of headaches calories of headaches i measure all my headaches in calories me too go start cutting calories at goabstract.com they're offering a free month when you sign up today that's at goabstract.com start using it get your team on board upgrade yourself change the way that you design together at goabstract.com thanks abstract and with that we'll get into episode 255 with charlie sutton So my name's Charlie. I'm Australian. Uh, what? I know. Uh, I prefer to pronounce Brisbane. Brisbane. <laughs> for Hear <others>. that, Jeff? <laughs> this is uh, it's a deep cut for one person out there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Have I already derailed the podcast? That's okay. Immediately. It's okay. Uh, from I, Brisbane. From uh, from Brisbane. Yeah. Sorry, I, Brisbane. Br- <laughs> don't. It's going to mess me up. Uh, so I've been in the US for six years now, Okay, seven years in London before that, mm-hmm. and then Australia before that. Yeah. Wow. World traveler. 
Yeah. So, you know, it's always funny. I think Australians do tend to, whenever they get asked to introduce themselves, tend to say redundantly, I'm Australian, <laughs> just in case everyone, <laughs> and everyone goes, oh, I would never. Have. I know. You sound so f- sophisticated. <laughs> it's so surprising. <laughs> I mean, could be New Zealander. Who knows, really? Let's not have an argument oh. like one minute into oh, the show. Boy. <laughs> do you yeah. want to debate uh, the, or discuss the nuances there of I, uh, Aussie, I think, Kiwi? Accents. I think we can do that later. Okay. Yeah, just when I'm warmed up a little bit. We need bit. it. We I don't need want to get riled. A safer space. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so. Cool. That's that's me. That's you. What yeah. are you working on right now? Right now, I'm at Facebook and I look after a couple of different design teams. So, video, which is basically any video you see on Facebook except the ones you would personally upload um, from your phone. Okay. But anything we call public video, so live video, um, things that Facebook might fund or produce, things from creators, all the tools they use. And I also look after gaming, which is instant games, game streaming. So um, yeah, that's kind of my, my world at the moment. Does that include the new gaming product? What is it? FBGG. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it's the whole gaming thing is pretty new for us, and um, it's all up in Seattle. And we've hired a couple of um, really awesome designers. It's led by Bree Miller, who comes from Blizzard, and she started that whole design team from scratch about um, you know nine or ten months ago. Yeah. So yeah, pretty new for us and new for Facebook, but um, really interesting for me to kind of get back into gaming culture and understand or almost just like catch up on what's been happening in that world. Some crazy stuff. Yeah. I have all those awkward conversations where I try and drop a bit of my early 2000s gaming knowledge and I'm like, oh, they don't play those things anymore. You guys remember uh, StarCraft? (laughs) You remember (laughs) SimCity? Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm I'm learning not to drop any anecdotes. Yeah. Just just listen. You don't want to show your... Your age. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's generally your a good gaming rule. age. It's a, or just my age in general. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, That's I think me. gaming is uh, interesting for Facebook. I'd mm. be curious to know, you know, as far as what you can say about like why mm. and why now. I think the why, I, I guess at the meta level for Facebook, we're always super interested in high intensity relationships between creators and fans because there's a dynamic there that um, is really positive and all of those sub communities and communities really interesting things happen and i think gaming is something in the last five to ten years that is hundreds of millions of people on the planet a part of these tribes and communities and guilds and i think that fits pretty naturally into what facebook is interested in Uh, but we are super new and i think we're also aware that in gaming communities identity and the platform of choice and the way those communities are structured has a lot of history and so i think we're easing ourselves into it and just at the moment really focusing in on game streaming okay particularly live game streaming so because that's the, most of those communities seem to come from video streaming of some sort yeah. or like yeah. are generated by that so did that spin out of the video thing or was it like its own separate thing i think uh, facebook's actually had as as we know gaming as part of it for a really long time and um the instant games platform is something that a lot of people play but i think when we got into live video 
And that's something that I, I think over time we almost became a little bit synonymous with, that live gaming streaming is a pretty natural bridge from there. And, you know, both from a technology point of view and a product point of view, but just in terms of the type of design problems, they're pretty similar, actually. So the type of things you want to build for the next generation of live products um, would be super appropriate in game streaming. And also what's interesting in game streaming, a lot of the interactions and norms and creative fan relationships, we would definitely want to bring into non-gaming live streaming as well. So I think it's just, uh, yeah, it's a good mutually kind of reinforcing relationship between those two product lines. I I was blown away when I joined Facebook mm-hmm. to know that, so this was 2015. Mm-hmm. When you joined Facebook at the company, not Facebook the product. The company, when I went to work there. Uh, that was 2015. And when was the Farmville era? Like the late 2000s, early early wow. 10s? Yeah. So it had been a long time, like the Farmville craze had kind of ended, but mm. I, I joined and learned how massive that platform mm. continues to be today. Yeah. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't consider is that yeah. there's still just so many people playing games on Facebook. That I figure it's, they have to be. Zynga's like, still got a huge office around the corner. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've so, also learned that if you want to trigger our, our friends in the gaming team, just say Farmville and Farmville, just yeah. watch their pupils dilate uh what was the one uh, like rocket man Ro- do you guys remember that one no no oh shit i um, remember mafia wars notifications mafia wars, mafia wars i don't think good. i ever played a facebook game though yeah i played mafia wars for sure um anyways what, what i think is interesting is you said you're you're thinking about all these different things mm. and like live streaming games is a huge thing mm. that obviously twitch is blowing up right now and right. youtube, YouTube gaming, gaming yeah. Yeah. uh like mm. these are massive industries now mm-hmm. uh so not only working on that, but also supporting all this other stuff that mm. Facebook's been doing for forever. Like, yeah. That must be, it's a lot of surface area. I'm curious how you think about the breakdown there or yeah. where to focus your energy. Weirdly enough for me, it, it's because um, I was looking after VR and 360 for Facebook for a couple of years. It It feels more mainstream because at least in video and gaming, to your point, like you've got Twitch and you've got YouTube gaming and there are these you know, certain features and, and things that we need to have. Whereas when you're in VR and 360, like everything is questionable and everything is a... Fewer boxes to check, it sounds like. Yeah. And just, you know, simple things like product market fit mm. just hasn't really meaningfully been established. So while the territory is really wide, I think the existential territory is a little bit smaller. Hmm. Um, so it's more operational width is the challenge Um, i think in a lot of cases we actually know what to do it's just timing and sequencing is everything as Mm. always so yes yeah that's the hard bit uh how do you how do you go about it solving that hard bit i think the thing that tends to exercise our mind is like how quickly can mental models shift and and particularly the image or the many mental models that people have of Facebook. It's not whether you can build that product or maybe even find an audience for it is in the like complicated (laughs) geometric shape that is what someone thinks Facebook is. How do you sequence a product within that? And then you have X billion slices of that weird geometry. So I think maybe the hard thing is who are you trying to serve? What do they need to get first to ladder up? 
to come to have the broadest understanding of the product that you have and see you as a credible source of that. That's the hard thing, I think. So I would almost it's like a version of cohort sequencing that you have to achieve, like for whom and when. And then even within that cohort is what baggage are they coming with? And how do you sort of pick that apart and find the right ladder for them up into an experience? So, that, so I think that's the hardest thing for us. That's super interesting. Um, how do you combat a decade and a half of people's perception of what Facebook is? In some cases, you don't combat it. You just you just build on what they already know. Um, but I, I guess what maybe it's like an old design question is you try and find the most uh, atomic or the, the most essential thing and you try and say, hey, we do this too. Or hey, did you know that we have something in this area that is relevant to you and build up from there. I think the biggest danger when you're at Facebook for a long time is you have this gargantuan fire hose of the newsfeed and newsfeed distribution, and you've got to sort of turn away from that light and go, okay, let's imagine that didn't exist. <laughs> imagine um, we don't have distribution to 2 billion yeah, people. <laughs> because if, if you start every design problem with, I have distribution to 2 billion people, I think you've already accepted a particular mental model and you've already accepted a certain business model. And that's a very hard way to build new products. Even if you're ultimately going to rely on that as a form of distribution and, and we're super lucky to have that. If it's in your head from the beginning, it, I think it messes you up. Interesting. Um, because everything's fighting for that particular territory. And as a designer, I think that means you're, you've jumped four steps ahead. Assumes someone associates Facebook with doing that thing, which yeah. is not a given. Someone has opened the app, not a given. Someone has an intent at all yeah. other than to kill time. Uh -huh. And then finally, in that like series of things that they're in the mood to do the thing at that time and you can kind of guide them to that yeah. task. So I always prefer to think, why on earth have they even opened Facebook at this point? Yeah. Because they have a choice. So. I'm curious how you think about product market fit at a place like Facebook uh, or how teams internally think about it because it seems as though volume isn't isn't the answer, whereas mm. volume to a startup might be like, oh, there's lots of people that are interested in this thing. But yeah, maybe I'm wrong here, but it seems like volume would be an easier box to tick at a place like Facebook. Yes and no. I think you're necessarily you have more people who can get exposed um, or be part of a particular experience, but um, it's a self-reinforcing negative or positive loop. So if you don't have volume and success, then you're fighting against this uh, waterfall of all the other things that people are seeing. So actually volume is still really important for new products. Like when we, I remember when we launched um, 360 photo support, you sort of had to accept that panoramas, which it was based on, are a tiny percentage of the photos that get uploaded. And mm. then you segment that to the phones of which we could scrape the metadata to know it was something we could turn into a 360 photo. And then you're talking in Facebook terms, a fraction of a percent. So yes, if I was a 360 photo startup, I'd just be, that'd be the greatest day on earth. <laughs> but if I'm going to all that effort to make a 360 photo and then I publish it and then it goes into that system 
and then Nothing my aunt happens. in Idaho doesn't give me a like, and I'm like, well, does she just not like yeah. this picture, or did she never see it? So, so volume and distribution are not a given, and there is a sort of an internal product market fit that needs to happen so that the ranking algorithms start to push that particular product higher up in the stack. So weirdly, there's always a product market fit problem yeah. with Facebook, which is why I, from a design point of view, I like to assume you don't have it and assume that maybe you won't have the lever. So, Assume that the thing can still easily fail or go away. Or yeah, 100%. Yeah. And, and that, that's very often the case with new products. One of the phrases you're using as you talk about your teams is I, I care after, I look after these yeah. teams. Yeah. Where do you, where'd you get that phrasing? Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm old and I've, possibly because life was easier back in the day, I, I got into management really young. So I think I started managing teams when I was 23, 24. So that's 17 or 18 years ago. And you go through- Hang on, let me do some math. Really <laughs> <I know. laughs> but it's like, it's terrifying math. And I think you just make so many mistakes and you, in the end, you realize your, the way you reconcile all the challenges of, of doing a good job managing people is you can just care for them as best as you can. And you know that in that relationship, they'll probably won't remember the things you think they'll remember and they'll be traumatized by the things you didn't mean. And you sort of have to adopt um, a perspective of care. Otherwise, you couldn't reconcile it in your own head unless you're a psychopath, um, which is one valid style. Um, <laughs> Psychopathic management. It certainly exists. <laughs> there are fancier names for it than that. But yeah, I, I guess, I guess um, that's my point of view. Now, of course, the people on my teams may not think that that's my perspective. But oh, is, yeah. Charlie on the org chart? Oh, yeah, he's my caretaker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all you can do. I, it's uh, also because I do a little bit of teaching. And it's the same thing that you you have these very grand ideas about the learning journey you can take people on and you feel the responsibility of teaching and you get graded as a lecturer and then you realize oh like all you're really doing is <laughs> kind of holding them for a couple of years and a couple of semesters and you hope it works out and i don't know i guess i've just been doing it for a long time and that's the attitude i try and take well a little bit of flattery for you We've heard a lot you don't of look forty one. We, we've <laughs> uh, listeners made that mad. You, you look great. You look great. Um, but keep in mind, we are in a dark room that is lit by a pink bulb. Yeah. Two pink no bulbs. One, no one looks forty one in here. Yeah, right yeah. Now. we all look. Super I just good. look like a cadaver. Yeah, yeah, but a young one. <laughs> a young. Yeah, that's key. <laughs> like a James young... Dean, kind of. <laughs> okay, okay. That's the look I got right now. Um, no, so we've we've had your reports on the show. Your reports. <laughs> People who have who have been caretaken by what you. What serial numbers did you get on? <laughs> uh, 008N. Excellent. A uh, fine work. Des a fine specimen. Des we had designation Gabriel. Mm, we yes. had designation Stephanie. Yes. Both models had to be retired. Yes, yes. Oh, shit. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait. Hang on. Maybe this isn't so flattering. Ugh! Or is it? <laughs> um... No, but uh, we've heard good things about your management style, but I'm curious okay. what that even means, having not been managed by you. So how would you describe the, <laughs> way, the way you think about managing people or perhaps there's values that you've developed over time about hmm. uh, 
the way you interface with people who you are looking after. The way I interface with my reports. Right. We're getting very computery, <laughs> but uh, I hope it it comes across a little more human than that. It's actually surprising how how little I kind of get into this line of thinking. I, I think because if you think too deeply about how you interface with reports, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. self doubt tends to creep in. Actually, but perhaps some of that <laughs> language even is yeah. is counterproductive. It's probably the reports. Yeah. Yeah. Bad, bad yeah. interfaces. Well, it's funny interface. because as yeah. I say it, you know, like the way you described your work is you're caring after looking yeah. after these teams. And my vocabulary has been so fucked up to say like <laughs> he's reports really more a, and interfacing. He's really more of a design shepherd than a design manager. <laughs> yeah, no, but it makes me think like I'm wondering what that vocabulary has done to the way I think about these kinds yeah. of roles. Or, or even just like I slip in sometimes to saying resources, which is oh, terrible. Sh- human yeah. resources. Yeah, every time I th- say that, like, oh, we just need more resources, I'm yeah. like, oh, no, I'm yeah. a human being. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Meet squares. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to, to your question, I maybe the a bit of background is having lived, as we talked about, in a couple of different places. I think that's really helpful to build your own management style because – if I think if you have a if you work at one company or if you work within one cultural context, I think that can lead to maybe you not reflecting enough on how you go about things because there are certain norms. I, I can remember actually when I was at Apple and I wasn't working in Cupertino, and I, I saw how much uh, some of my European colleagues would struggle just with the cultural norms, like flat out how positive they should be so i'm supposed to smile all the time everything <laughs> i've encountered that at most places yeah. like the european colleagues are like wait we have to be super nice huh yeah. or they're like but it's not an opportunity it's a problem <laughs> no really it's a problem no, no it's an opportunity <laughs> just, just say it just say it just to say it so i think that that helps just just kind of uh gives you a bit of an outside in perspective on yourself and i i guess one of the principles I have is that there's no competence demonstration required after you arrive. I think one of the hardest things for people is... They once get, you're here, be dumb. <laughs> it's cool. No, 100%. That, like Once you're in, you're, you've passed the test. I, I think there's something really important about that. Most people are dealing with so much pressure they put on themselves, particularly if you work at one of these you know, big multinational companies, they don't need more competence pressure. So I tend to say, once you're here, you're here, you're done, uh, and not be on a kind of covert evaluation mission. So I try and do that. I try not to have any age experience barriers. So I think if you're straight out of school and you're in, then um, we'll give you as much responsibility as, as you want. I'm, I'm I think especially people early on in their field, they, yeah. they feel that competence pressure extremely yeah. harshly. Yeah. Uh, so I think, and actually, interesting enough, it, it doesn't go away. Like, like people feel it when they switch teams or when they go into a new domain. I remember where a lot of people are joining VR who had no 3D experience, no architecture, no industrial design, no gaming, and boom, they were back there in competence town. So I, I guess I just try and say it's fine. You know, you're here, you've made it. I try so. to just like live on the border of Confidence Town. Like I can commute <laughs> over if I want to, but like rents are going up in Confidence oh, Town. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Build more housing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Metaphor. Yeah. So I guess I try and take that point of view. And the the only other thing I've noticed is particularly here, but generally in management, any 
mistake or if you really go in it with the wrong point of view, it, it always comes back around. There's no, uh, there's nowhere to hide from going into leading people with the wrong point of view. Like you might succeed at some level, but I think ultimately it'll come back to bite you and particularly in the Bay Area where there's like one degree of separation. So I always try and be mindful of the fact that, you know, it's an investment in people and- Do you have an example yeah. of what you mean, mean there? Um, you know, I think you never know who you're going to report to. You never know which, when some of those structural things will change and the people who are in your team, you never know where they end up. So I think, I think sometimes you kind of mentally construct this career path for people that you're shunting them along. Mm -hmm. And that also gives you some form of protection, like, oh, they'll move on to this and they'll move on to this. Therefore, my job is done or that mistake will go into the past. <laughs> but I tend to find it's much more organic than that. People, um, come back around to the company you work for or they'll ask you for a job again mm. or you'll see them at a conference and that to me feels like an extension of that relationship and I always try and have that in mind because mm. it's a small world in design so what do you what do you see as as your role then as you're dealing with people on your team is it is it that career development piece mm. or is it is it figuring out the right level of responsibility for experience all of these things like how, how do you think about a new person joining your team, where to even start with. And how do you design that sketch? <laughs> yeah. And should should managers code? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think the first thing I would say is that the, the hardest thing is typically context. Like everyone's, if you imagine the person at the top of the company has 100% context and then each change in downwards or is a, a big cleaving of context that disappears. And one of the most helpful things you can do for people to help them do their job well is just give them context and help them understand where they should be putting their mental time and energy and where they shouldn't. Um, I think it's actually pretty natural at companies like Facebook that everyone's thinking about the product, everyone's thinking about the industry, everyone's doing little context calculations in their head. I think one of my job is, is to say, you shouldn't really worry about this bit. Like you can think about it, but that's it's not necessary and to make sure they have as much context in the subtleties of relationships between people and how products are interlocking a lot of what i do is say that thing you think means this it probably doesn't mean that or don't worry about this thing over here because I, I otherwise i think people can be crushed by that the weight well, of that it's, context it's, it's trading scope for fidelity right like that's the yeah the main goal is like the person at the top can see more things, but at less of a resolution. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, some of them have frightening resolution, actually. <laughs> well, <laughs> robots work that way. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> but, um, and also just uh, when that thing we talked about before is that when you go through your day and you're worried about your own competence, a lot of that is a reflection of the context that you have on a particular problem. Like, will this person like this? Or will this product make it through this review? And a lot of what I am doing is just providing context and reassurance or uh, saying, don't fight that political battle. That's that's not one you need to worry it's about. It's always the hardest to give up a political battle. I know, it's so tempting. So yeah, that's a lot of what I do, I think. I'm not sure how to quite ask this question because it, it's sort of forming it in real time, but it's it's along the lines of, do you try and make it so that your teammates like you like do you want to be liked as a manager or is is that divorced from like 
I'm here to provide scope, responsibility, and help people manage their career. I'm here to provide brain nutrients for you. And, and, and if, they, if they like me, it's a byproduct, but perhaps not a, a goal as I go about my one-on-ones and things like that. That's, that's an interesting uh, it's, question. This, again, there, formulating there are, in real time. I'm, yeah, I'm trying to think like through my myself. Answer. I wouldn't be doing the job I'm doing and doing it where I'm doing it if I didn't crave working with these people and having good relationships with them. And that's part of the joy of the job. So I can't make this like disassociation between the relationships and the quality of relationship and the work. Like, I don't think that's any way to live, to be honest. Sometimes you do have to put that on hold when you make difficult decisions or you're thinking about the shape of an organization or uh, you know I've been in situations where we've had to downsize teams and you, you do have to turn off a bit of your brain but yeah I want I want to get along with people and that's the joy of the job yeah um, I think I'm a pretty relationship driven person like th- that's a lot of the pleasure I get from my work so yeah I want to be amongst people who I can have good banter with and talk about nonsense and relieve some of the pressure on me as well so sure. yeah I, I can't make that separation, yeah. to be honest. And you're doing that with two teams right now, you said, video and the, the gaming side. Are they distinct teams or are they like yeah. attached at some level? Yeah, how's that set up? They're, so gaming is, uh, in a sense, like a, a vertical within the video and gaming organization. And I so see. it's a peer team to the live team, the creators team, the publisher team. So we're all, we have all of the managers in one group. Gaming just is in a different stage in its development. It's much newer, trying a lot of different things, whereas you might look at the core video experience is very mature, so you're, you're dealing with a different you know, bunch of problems there. Mm. I see. But, but it's they're all peer teams, and we kind of work that way. So I'm curious how you spend your time day to day. Is it is it mostly on the gaming, since that's the most in flux right now? Not really. Uh, if anything, that team... Because what it's trying to do is to really serve game streamers right now is one of the, its big missions. And the lovely thing about that is it's a bounded quantity. Like they're working with some creators, they're trying a whole bunch of stuff, they're getting a lot of research. So that trajectory is just good. Like it, it doesn't need me coming in there going, well, what does darkness really think? Darkness? <laughs> so, so you're sitting there streaming Fortnite is the answer. <laughs> I spend remarkably little time worrying about gaming because it is just, it's in this voracious learning phase where it's going to try a whole bunch of stuff. It's going to be looking for product market fit and there's so many experts in that team i think sometimes my role is to say hey gaming this is what's happening over here or there will be someone on facebook who sure they're spending a lot of time doing game streaming but they'll also post about their anniversary and we have to think about how those two journeys relate to each other so uh, because i think when you're in gaming that's a um, a pretty intense consuming thing and sometimes I'm there just to ring a little bell going but the next thing you might watch <laughs> might not be a game a wedding video it might be so and that 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 kind of you know user experience has to be wedding like, emotes done. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. so yeah so I, I gaming is actually breeze breeze doing a great job and I, I think if anything a lot of my time with her is just for her to go, is this is this how Facebook normally does stuff? I'm actually giving that context again. Like, is this weird? Is this normal? Is this a Facebook way of solving the problem? Can we do it differently? That's probably the the main conversation I have in the gaming world. Got it. Uh, as a very relationship driven person, mm-hmm. how do you advise others 
who are interested in becoming managers, uh, especially transferring from the IC mm. route into management. Specifically, specifically, what I mean by your relationship is it seems very natural. I mean, I, I don't know you very well, but it seems very natural from from this brief conversation we've had. Uh, yeah, how you would advise other people that want to or are curious about that transition. I guess the first thing I say is don't do it for the wrong reasons. The wrong reasons are you feel like your individual design career is hitting the buffers, so you're looking for the next thing. Don't do it for power or prestige reasons, which everyone's like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm like, no, really, don't, don't do it for that because that'll end up in a bad place. Um, you really have to have a lot of uh, interest in people and and because a lot of your time is going to be dealing with the difficult bits of human relationships, like people being upset, conflict. And if you're not down for that, you won't like the job. And then the other thing is, are you okay to spend most of your time thinking about the strategic side of design, not the execution side? Because as you spend more time doing the job, even though you need to stay connected to craft and you need to maintain your taste and be sharp, you're not in a contest anymore about how well you know a tool or how up-to-date you are on something. Um, and a lot of people's self-esteem and a lot of their careers is actually based on that feedback loop. And I'm going to say, well, that's going to break now. Are you okay with that? And Knowing so, the latest thing, the latest yeah, trends, yeah, tools. Yeah. yeah. So I think a lot of people also, their progression as an individual designer is relatively so fast. You know, they go from intern to having a product to having a bigger product in a three-year span and then they move into management and go okay i'm now i'm going to be this level i'm going to be this level i'm like you could spend 10 years at this level because the apprenticeship for management is completely different to the technical apprenticeship of doing design work and you might have stopped. This might be it. You might say, I can never manage a bigger team than this. Or, So I, I think a lot of people, they're just not used to reframing their career in that way. So that's a lot of my initial discussion with people, um, making sure their motivations are the right motivations and they know what they're in for. I see. Um, yeah. Of people who make that leap, what are common mistakes that you see maybe within the first year? Is it always related to, to a mismatch in that expectation? Uh, <laughs> I think two two big mistakes I see is that they try and they project confidence and competence and they don't ask for advice and they don't escalate enough. Like they remember how it felt to escalate or push something up and that always felt stressful. So they're disinclined to do it themselves. And a lot of the problems that young managers get themselves into is not escalating because they want to show that they've got it. Yeah. Like, I've got this handled. Yeah. I'm like, no, don't have this handled. <laughs> help me help you. Yeah. Um, that's a big mistake. And the other one is just conflict. Conflict sucks. And no longer can you resolve conflict by just passive aggressive, <laughs> like ignoring each other. You've no. got to resolve the conflict yeah. and do it fast. And a lot of people struggle to rip that Band-Aid off. So, Were there people or, or things that helped you figure that out? Books, or, or is it? Brian wants a, a book of, to answer his problems. <laughs> no, it's, or does that just come Dale with? Dale Carnegie's is, How to Win Friends and Influence oh, People, yeah. circa uh -huh. 1923. Uh, I was just super lucky. I had a lot of great design leaders who I sort of studied at the feet of, and they were all wildly different. And so by the time I got to this job, I've had 
two years and then two years and two years of people who are so different. And I was able to kind of collage together my method. Um, don't think there's a book for it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's more through experience. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. No, I wouldn't imagine that there's a book that solves all the problems, but perhaps books that bring up interesting philosophies or value driven like ways of thinking about management perhaps. I tend to find books freak you out as a manager because you open the first page and you're like, oh, damn it, I knew I should. Because they tell you, they they give you this mirror of all the things that you forget to do or you don't do as well as you should. It's like the opposite of a self-help book. It's like a self-chastisement book. Oh, shit. So I tend to read books that are about design theory, design principles, like that will sort of remind you of this li- this thing you're trying to do why you're helping all these people and you trying to it's almost like I'm more interested in reading I'm reading a book about uh, the history of the Bauhaus at the moment and the origin of modernism and I find that much more interesting because I'm like how did they hold their nerve or how do people rebel against modernism because I find that mental dialogue when I come into design decisions where I have to hold my nerve or I have to tell a team that's a bad idea Having those books in my head is sometimes more helpful than having like self-help books for management in my head because they're all full of obvious lessons. The hard thing is judgment times people and then trying to figure out where all those points of intervention are and sometimes just reading what someone's done through a design process is really helpful. Um, Yeah, so that's kind of not going to be a helpful management book. I see. Yeah. Bryn's super into self-help books. Um, it's probably bad news for for you, bud. No, what are you reading? I want to hear all about it. Bryn, I'm have... reading The Order of Time, which is a story about... Bryn hates well, it's self-help not a, books. It's not a story. It's a book about how we perceive space-time. Yeah. Solid. So, you know, self-help. Self-help. Wink. Yeah. It's self-help in that it's... Uh, Helping it you understand time. read to me by Benedict Cumberbatch. What? Yeah. Oh, wow. wow. That's a high-profile audiobook. Mm-hmm. Or at least the bot that uses s- sentence fragments yeah. from Benedict. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's a solid self-help book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Having a view of the the heat death of the universe always helps you contextualize your management decisions. <laughs> How important yeah. all this really yeah, is. Yeah, we got so. a minute for that. We're, yeah. I think we're going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, and no, I, I think also for me, reading is um, just a way to relax. So I, I don't think I could come home after... 12, 14 hours doing the thing and read more about the thing. Mm. I, I just, I want to kind of switch my brain off all of that. Cause it's like, even if you love it and even if you're good at it, which I don't necessarily claim to be, it's exhausting. People are exhausting. Even it just, it's like emotionally, it takes a lot out of you. So going back home and reading about what I should have done with the people <laughs> is like, where did you mess up today? <laughs> that's right. Oh, yeah. No, I, I don't, I don't tend to do that. Mm. Which could be a total flaw in my management style. Maybe I should be reading those things. Uh, it sounds like it's working out okay. I hope so. I hope so too. We've only heard it from his side, so yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, yeah. We'll continue gathering. Uh, yeah, no, data I, points I, here. I like this interrogation. Yeah, a little bit. This is like <laughs> it's just all the off mic real talk from yeah. from Gabe and Steph, and then tell co- us tell us how bad Gabe messed up one time. <laughs> <laughs> Just Gabe, kidding. Gabe never messed up. Never not He's once. He's a principled man in an unprincipled world. That's all, <laughs> that's all you need to know about Gabe. Love you, Gabe. And as long as you understand that, you, you're fine. Yeah. We what, should. Once you know that, you know Gabe. Yes, exactly. 
let's back up. I want to know how how you even ended up here and and some of those mentors along the way. So, uh, you're from Australia. Yeah. Uh, where are you from? Australia. Uh, no, but like where in Australia? <laughs> Originally, I'm from far north Queensland, mm-hmm. a place called uh, Cairns. Queensland or Queensland? <laughs> Queensland. <laughs> we can do this. All I day. feel like you just said that just for us. <laughs> it was just for you. <laughs> uh, although, ironically, I was born in Melbourne. Oh. <laughs> and then I moved to far north Queensland. Um, my dad had a job with, um, I don't know what the equivalent would be over here, but like the scientific body for doing research. And so he would follow research projects around. So we moved from Cairns, far north Queensland, up into the mountains, which is the rainforested area of Australia, down to Brisbane. And then- What kind of research? Uh, he does something called plant pathology, which is the diseases in yep. plants. Yep. So. So you, the funny thing is when you graduate there, you, I think you just get randomly assigned a plant, you know, in a way that like it, when you start out in the foreign office, you get randomly assigned an embassy and he got given tobacco as his first plant. And he's like, great, I'm going to go study tobacco. Easy. But then he got into uh, subtropical fruit and uh, hmm. he's uh, an expert in mangoes, which is quite a claim to fame. So yeah, we followed We followed. I hope mangoes are good for me. They are due to the hard work of plant pathologists the world over. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you to all you plant pathologists who this might- This message was brought to you by- <laughs> Plantpathology.com. Exactly. By mango diseases. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So yeah, um, and then I went to university in Brisbane. Yeah. Then I- well, what, were you, what were you doing at the time besides surfing a lot? Actually, it, I hadn't started surfing then. Shit, um, I thought that was the safest assumption. No. I thought, because no. today- Australians like, came out of the womb surfing. Like That's like the whole- I'm really thing, not right? trying to be stereotypical. I just really assumed no, that this was a safe I assumption because you went start, surfing no. four hours ago. I'm a late bloomer. I didn't start until I was 28. <laughs> wow. Okay. And if you ever, ever want to know the definition of humble, oh. try and learn how to surf in Australia at the age of 28. As an Australian. As an Australian. <laughs> as a pale Australian. Oh, man. So, yeah, and that's where I went to school. What did you study? I did, uh, there's a thing in Australia, or there was at the time, where uh, you do something called a dual degree, which is uh, you do two bachelor's degrees at the same time. And by doing that, you cut off the total duration by a year or two. So I did- That math totally makes sense. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> which seemed like a great deal at the time. Twice but, the work, half the time. But I think the secret hedge was you do one degree that you were interested in and the other one you thought would get you a job. So I did arts, which is- <laughs> You should call it hedging. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. The hedge fund degree. Exactly. Uh, so I did arts, which is like liberal arts degree, um, majored in philosophy. And then I did law as my, I hope I get a job in this. Hmm. Uh, and um, that didn't turn out like that. So- uh, about a, one subject before completing my degree in law. I'd already got my arts degree. Uh, I got a job with Apple and moved down to Sydney. And so I'm, I'm eternally one subject away from having my second degree, which is always vaguely embarrassing. But You ever thought about finishing? No, because I discovered the law actually changes sufficiently. So I think if I can no longer do, there's like a statute of limitations as you can't yeah, go back yeah. after 10 years. You can't go back and learn, yeah. learn 20 year ago law. It's like, wait. <laughs> <laughs> so, no. He's I, a I retro lawyer. Yeah. That's right. I, I do maritime law of the 1850s, <laughs> mainly to do with sugar. Yes. So, that's my specialty. No, no inclination to go back. It's, You're not very busy with, with that law degree. Yeah. I 
I think I, I think I, I don't know if you ever find this with career expectations as well as that when you're young, the archetypes of careers you think exist is actually very small. You're like doctor, lawyer, accountant. And I was like, well, I don't want to be a doctor and I'm terrible at math. So lawyer, lawyer it is <laughs> by process of elimination. Yeah, I, there wasn't, there was no alternative career path that I, that seems, uh, profound in some way mm. and hopefully it's changed since yeah. then that people realize or, or young people realize that there are more than that but i understand what you're saying those are like the prototype yeah. of careers and design as a discipline i think at my university design was probably within the electrical or mechanical engineering group and it was industrial design i think it, i'm not even sure we had a communications design uh program at this this university mm. so um, I, I just don't think I would have computed the fact that I would do two years of mechanical engineering and then become an industrial designer. It just was wasn't. your intent to become a designer at that point? I mean, you went for no. philosophy, so. <laughs> no. I, yeah, sort of an interesting subpath there. Yeah, I I think, and the bit of the law I was really interested in was all the, what they call jurisprudence. It's all the philosophy of the law. So I guess I'm, that's why Gabe and I get on so well. I see, we? I see. Some dots are connecting here. <laughs> yeah, I just, I guess I'm just really interested in, in turning ideas around and, and discussing them. So, and I, I got a job um, at the university at a research center. And one of the things I had to do was uh, they were selling consultancy services for the sexually named Safety Critical Software Systems. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And I had to do all of the business development for consultancy and training. So I had to do all the flyers for them. So one of my jobs was just to do desktop publishing for such exciting courses as how to not have a 747 explode on you unexpectedly huh. or make sure that missile hits the ship. <laughs> <laughs> so there I was in front of... Um, 101. <laughs> yeah, I was in front of... I, I don't even... It would have been... Oh, PageMaker. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, doing a little bit of desktop publishing, and I think that was just, just kind of got me going in that world. And uh, I see. yeah, I don't even know what desktop publishing means at this point. Like websites I'm, or print? I, I have a, a an idea in my head. Wait, uh, is PageMaker for print or is it for websites? It's for print. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. Don't spin this on us. Don't make us ans answer questions because we're no. We're going. I used to design flight. one time. Oh, InDesign, that would have been a dream. I used things that didn't have undo mm. back, mm. back in my day. <laughs> we were God, Jesus, that's like... Yeah, we were so decisive because there was no undo. <laughs> back in my day, you couldn't mess up. Exactly. Uh, how did Apple happen? Um, the place where I was working just part-time to get some money uh, was a, like a computer shop and it sold Apple and it sold Dell. And uh, I just got to know people, and I think I did a few presentations to the university on, you know, sort of um, on a couple of different things. And I think I just got to be known by the Apple people when they would come up occasionally from Sydney. And then a job came up, and through that network of Apple people, they suggested that I, I go for this job down in Sydney. Yeah. And I did. What and was the job? It was to start uh, basically Apple's version of professional services. So at the time, Apple had a way to like sell you pro physical products, but it had no way to really deploy them itself. And so what we did is my job was to start the business. Uh, like if we sold 
20,000 iMacs to uh, a school to figure out like how would Apple themselves help you get them all installed and get the same software on them and deploy them. And that was something the company had never done before. And so that was, I sort of started that business inside Apple and then this was in your early 20s. This is when I was the ripe old age of 23, I think. That sounds like a lot of responsibility and an ambiguous new yeah. thing for a multinational corporation. I mean, I, in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. <laughs> and I, because I'd been working on training and consultancy, yeah. I think I sounded more compelling than I've I I've used ha- an Apple computer before. Sure, <laughs> I, right. I, I can do that job. <laughs> Have you heard of PageMaker? <laughs> so, yeah, it I've was, never made a mistake, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> it was super weird. And I... And they just, I was so lucky. They, they just, um, this guy, Gary, who was my manager at the time, he just gave me this responsibility and said, build this business. And so that got me into management super quickly because it started growing. So I had to hire a team to do all of the stuff. And then that model, they wanted to replicate that in Europe. So I moved to Apple in Europe and started building the same thing there. And yeah, when I think back on it, I just assumed there weren't many people because why did they give me that responsibility? It was crazy. It it also seems a little bit telling of like the impact you can have by just giving someone responsibility. Yeah. It's a big thing to just give to someone at that age and... A philosophy uh, student, no less. Uh, <laughs> a failed law student, yeah. I don't know. Do you feel like that impacted the way you think about yourself or perhaps self-confidence and yeah, <laughs> the way you approach future jobs? Like, I think I got it. I think it's also that something it, – it's remarkable how far you can go if you appear confident when you are presenting like it, it just still remains this superpower that if you can stand in front of an audience with a concept and advocate for it strongly, that opens so many doors. And that that was really, I think, the thing that got me that job and then got me sort of moving in that job. And I think people will just respond to that. And um, definitely I, I being given that trust is something I try and do for other people as well. Um, and I, I think it also makes me f- believe that you can level up very quickly. And um, so, I, I mean, I remember, uh, I think, you know, uh, Christoph, Christoph. Tozier. Tozier, yeah. Like, um, Early prototype for a Kelly Sutton manager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, when he he wanted to move into management, and I'm like, sure, like, you're good with people and you're passionate about what you're working on and you're way older than I was when I got given my first management job. And so I, I guess it just makes me believe you can do these things when you're really young and as long as you have the right support and you can, as long as you can project that confidence, which is, I guess, again, circling back to what we spoke about before, why I don't want to put, or I try not to put that competence pressure on people because that just eats at the one ingredient that can help you get through those right, early right. stages. It'll just white ant it so badly. I know Silicon Valley is different in many ways regarding age, but it seems like a reason that people might not become managers super young is because if you're 23 years old, Mm. the likelihood of you managing anyone younger than you is pretty low. Like you're managing older folks and there's an interesting and perhaps like conflicting dynamic there. How did you deal with that or think about it? Yeah, that's really interesting you mentioned that. I didn't start managing people who were younger than me 
until this the second most recent job I've had. Up until then, I was younger than like there was always someone I was younger than. Was so, that ever weird, or did it come up? Yeah, it was weird. Yeah, yeah. and I I think it maybe made me overcompensate on the confidence so i think i over indexed on the i've got this so that's when when i i see other people trying to project it i'm like hey really it's fine i find 23 year olds tend to try to project i've got this I really have well underkin. or assume <laughs> that they have this i've noticed that when it comes to technical aspects of design work mm. but for managing stuff I, that's pretty rare interesting okay. um i don't see many 22, 23 year olds who put up their hand and say, I got this. I feel like maybe you can't fake that as well. (laughs) It's bold. It's bold. I mean, it is possible. I still think it is possible, but you need a lot of support and you need the right conditions. So, did you have conflict because of the age difference of of managing people older than you, more experienced than you? I think. I, it might have been there, and I just wasn't aware of it. I was lucky <laughs> you to be were young enough to be naive. <laughs> yeah, it's quite possible that there were all these grizzled silverback gorillas who were just going, "What the hell who with is this, this guy? <laughs> with this person whose voice hasn't broken, yeah. telling me how to do things?" Yeah. But uh, at he that doesn't time, even surf. <laughs> I know. Look how pale he is. <laughs> so yeah, it's quite possible. But I was blissfully unaware of it, and they were all super supportive. So um, yeah, my first management job i think the average age of people i worked with would have been late 30s early 40s so i was a solid 15 years younger than everyone else wow uh so you did apple yeah in sydney then to london to london did that for a few years and then some of the people who worked at apple had moved to nokia and so they came and asked me to go and redo that same thing for nokia globally Mm. um and in hindsight, leaving Apple in January 2007 to go to Nokia may not have been the most savvy industry yeah. move, mm-hmm. but I don't regret it. I learned a lot of stuff, met a lot of good people. Uh huh. But you just don't pull up the Apple stock chart very often. <laughs> just before I left, um, they did a "Would you like to stay here?" moment. I'm like, it's just. Just it's Apple. just all funny money and it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. And occasionally, I do go back and go, oh, Shit. okay. But, you know. Yes, can't fine. change it at this it's point. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. And I also, I'd had like six or seven years there. So, I was beginning to be a little bit worried that I was getting good, uh, however competent I was or wasn't. I was good at Apple and Apple's such a particular culture. Mm-hmm. My worry, and I, I saw a lot of people boomerang back into Apple after a very short period of time outside. And I guess I just felt as much as I loved the company that I wanted to make sure I wasn't just hyper-specialized in one company culture. And Nokia was the profound opposite of Apple. So I just felt like working for a you know, a European company had a very different view of the world and that was going to be good for me um, and see if I, if I had it in a different way. So... To like see if you could pull it off again, yeah, and and do it where I had no track record and um, where the corporate culture was a little bit more consensus driven, slower moving. Whereas Apple, it was very supportive of you know sort of fast moving, aggressive, um, idea driven. And I went to Nokia, and I, I had to maybe convince an organization that was maybe didn't respond quite in the same way. So that was a good challenge. Um, but I just wanted to see if I could do it elsewhere yeah yeah okay and, and so you did i did and how'd I was, it go 
I mean, it it went well from a company point of view. It was pretty tragic to go from 42% market share of every phone sold on the planet down to sub single digits. Yeah. I think I think it is in textbooks as one of the greatest sheddings of market value that has ever happened without a safety crisis. Yeah. So it makes you wonder if it's um not just a coincidence, you know? <laughs> like there was this moment in 2007 where you left Apple <laughs> and sort of freed them to finally become innovative just, and invent the iPhone. Yeah. Yeah. Something there. So, I'm sure there's some correlation. <laughs> Although you could argue the other correlation is the moment I joined Nokia, it literally... Oh, no. Yeah, it goes yeah, both ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that, didn't, that didn't work out great. So but how long did you stay at Nokia? I was there for almost seven years. Wow. Yeah. So. Stick around. Yeah, I'm a total idealist. What's that up had with to that? be coming up... I mean, if you joined there in 2007, that had to be like about the time they got bought by Microsoft, right? That actually didn't happen until 2014. Oh. Seven years. Yeah. Yeah. So. So you were there until then? <laughs> I was there until the bitter ends. And ironically, the thing I loved most and the thing I worked hardest on was right at the very end. We were in a, a design studio that was focused on building new types of products for the outdoors. Um, we were trying to sort of reinvent Nokia by finding something in people's lives that they valued and had a lot of emotional attachment to. And we saw that the outdoors was really underserved from a physical product design perspective. You know, everything was rubberized and mm -hmm. technical. And the only sports that got any love were running and cycling for products. And so we built this uh, design organization and a part of the company called Adventure Lab. And we were making outdoor products. And um, we got about a month away from shipping. And then Nokia decided it didn't want to be in that business anymore. And we, I think we, at that time, we even had boxes in factories and we were ready to go. And uh, so, yeah, my whole division got shut down. So that was a natural end to my time at Nokia. And then I went to a startup for uh, nine months and then to Facebook. What was the startup? It was uh, an augmented reality startup that... Um, was trying to produce a full stack um, AR products, so headset tracking software, UI and application layer. We're just trying to prototype the entire thing, which was, again, wildly <laughs> ambitious, and we probably needed five years and a billion dollars to pull it off. Mm. But um, it was a super fun year where we I got to sort of understand a lot about product making and design for virtual reality, which was the prototyping environment for mm. augmented reality at that time. Um, so yeah, it was a really good crash course. And then that kind of bridged me into moving into VR at Facebook. So I was really lucky to kind of have that nine months. Yeah, there's a few things we skipped through. So one, when we commented, oh, wow, Nokia for seven years, yeah. he said, oh, I'm an idealist. Yes. What do you mean by that? Because you were also at Apple for a while. I <laughs> use like yellow phones for the future, man. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Banana phones. You remember that flip phone? Mm -hmm. um, I just, I can't work on things I don't believe in. And I, I, when I do tend to manifest enough belief to work on something, I just feel it. You drink uh, the Kool-Aid. I, I do. I, I think that's how I have to operate. From my very first job was trying to manifest that this could be a thing. And I, by weird coincidence, every single job I've had has had a part of it, which is convincing people that this new thing can be a thing. And I, I guess I'm just a self-contained idealist loop. And now I, after seven years, I imagine it breaks. It's and easy to be skeptical though. And it's, I feel like that's a lot of why people 
maybe don't stick around places is mm. that like it's really easy to like convince yourself that you should like be more skeptical or like be more yeah. concerned about like what it is yeah i get that but it's weird that the most successful companies in our industry i think at their heart are essentially idealists um you know def they have some firm conviction in their head that probably seemed very unreasonable at one point in time yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I believe if you wanted to put your cynical hat, one of the greatest ways to accrue value is to be a rabid idealist. Mm -hmm. I'd say the other thing is it might just be like self-protection. Like yeah. you want to have your heart broken if it <laughs> if you end up being wrong or whatever. Yeah, that's true. Hmm. Yeah. And it makes me a little bit more immune to the buffeting winds of corporate change because I think it all, like you said, you can hold on to your kernel of belief mm -hmm. in the thing that you're doing and you get less pushed around by company circumstances. Until Stephen Elop comes in and then you know. That was a that was an interesting time. Uh-huh. That was Burning a, platform. I mean, put it all out there. It was the truth, but maybe there could have been different ways of talking about that. <laughs> but... Yeah, well, Nokia is such a sad story. Actually, like the more I think about it, like it, it's an abject lesson for me in companies not being aware that their previous strength is now weakness. Like you read this textbook about the innovators dilemma and you're like, of course, how did you not realize this? And then you see billion dollar companies with lots of smart people just driving that train off the cliff. So I'm kind of glad I got to be at Apple in this incredible upswing from 2000 like barely mm -hmm. relevant to yeah that's like right at the beginning of yeah. the 2001 yeah. is the like big upswing right yeah i mean i actually i think until the ipod the ipod had really caught hold and almost like the ipod nano days and they mm -hmm. started stocking it in retail it was still pretty scrappy and then in nokia i saw the inverse curve mm. So now I'm at Facebook where the, I guess the curve has been more like the Apple one. I'm, I look at it with a little bit more of a, it can go in any direction. Things can change. Yeah. That's the whole story of the Sun Microsystems sign, right? Yeah. Maybe yeah. you could explain that for people that don't know. Yeah. The Facebook original campus or what they call classic campus in Menlo Park, the Facebook sign out the front um, on the back still has the Sun Microsystems um, logo on it because the Facebook campus used to be the Sun campus and it is a very good way to remember stuff just it disappears so Multi quickly. Multi-hundred billion dollar companies so quickly. just disappear. Yeah and you know that inside those companies there were all points of view and someone was probably shouting from the rooftops yo Sun <laughs> you've got to do it differently so I'm, I'm actually and genuinely glad I got to see both sides of the curve it's a it was yeah. a good education. The the transition to a startup is interesting mm. were you disillusioned of big company at that point you just were like let's do something totally different in every respect of the work from the thing itself ar mm -hmm. to also the size scope stage of a company uh I was just idealistic about augmented reality. Okay. I just, I, I, I was really lucky. It was a tiny, tiny little six-person company. So you came in as an IC then? I came in as uh, with a very glorified title, which was co-founder and head of design. But what mm. that really meant, I was the second designer, and I had one other designer in mm -hmm. in the team. Um, and uh, I think we ended up with four designers at the end, three or four. Yeah, but I just believed in augmented reality. Mm. And this was a, actually a, a slightly weird startup construction because 
it was actually part of Samsung Research America. So they'd created an incubator where they had a startup style model, like you had to go th- effectively through funding rounds and you could have a, a virtual exit. So they're trying to have all the same incentives in place. But it's possible that your startup idea could go to Samsung. And in augmented reality, that seemed like such a obvious Strong fit. likelihood, yeah. Yeah, if you're in the business of making flat screen displays something that is in front of your eyes could disintermediate that business. So, hey, that could be a thing. Yeah. So, yeah, we worked at that for nine months, but I, we got to a stage where we just couldn't make it viable um, and uh, we wound it down, which is really sad. But again, uh, it's super interesting to go through the startup, like fast evolution, crazy demos. We I remember we had to paint the entire room black and put black take markers on the room so our tracking system wouldn't go wildly offline but that also meant that the heat in the room used to go insane Mm -hmm. so we're inside a black box which was very hot and we bought this loaned this military grade headset that they use in fighter jets because at the time that was the best optics you could get we'd borrowed it and there had one critical flaw that it couldn't fit glasses um, because they basically had lenses that had to move, be moved almost to eyelash length. And our, I can remember our critical demo, we're like, okay, it's going to happen. It's going to be a thing. Executive vice president wears glasses. <gasps> oh, shit. <laughs> we were like, ah, oh, startup life. Ah, yeah. We did not think of this one thing. <laughs> yeah. This is a secondary use case. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, our, our primary market is people with good vision. Yeah. <laughs> or wear contacts. Yeah, so it was, it, was nine, it was only nine months approximately, but I felt like I got the full gamut of startup experience. Sure, fair Startup enough. time is somewhat dilated. Indeed, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And particularly when you're working on augmented reality where nothing works yeah. until it does. So yeah. we got to experience all of the, it wasn't doing software as a service for easier delivery of avocado on toast. It was like yeah. everything we did involved. It's like, not a bad startup idea. That is solid, isn't it? I'm craving a parachute. some avocado toast. Right now. Right this yeah. moment. Yeah. Uh, so startup doesn't work out. Doesn't work out. Uh, when did Facebook enter the equation? When I was choosing jobs it was actually between facebook and the startup and so i had in a, in a moment of madness i said no facebook i would prefer to go to this little startup uh, and very cunningly um the person who'd been trying to bring me in sort of hit me up for lunch in the late stages of the startup he's like hey just, i've been paying attention <laughs> <laughs> just in case you're interested we've got this vr thing spinning up and now that you're working on AR, that sounds like a really good fit. Oh, wow. And, uh, they month, really got you. Yeah, a month or two later, there I was. I see. Not uh, showing the desperation of my startup having just yeah, yeah, folded, yeah. of course. Yeah. yeah, it's all about the outward yeah. confidence. Yeah, I was playing hard to get. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Uh, why was Facebook interesting to you before that? Or at that point where you're deciding between the startup and, and Facebook? It was interesting. In our studio, we had, um, at Nokia, we had maybe... 10 or 11 designers and everyone was interviewed. We're all sort of interviewing like crazy. So it was like a self-support group. And I was often going to a company saying, I have six great designers on my team because there was maybe a possibility that we could actually get the team hired. Mm-hmm. And that was my dream. Just be like, acquires are fairly nice for most people. Yeah. And, and as I went around through that process with the different companies, you know, people were ending up at Apple and they were ending up at Google and, and different, 
um, places. And one of the one of the studio had gone to Facebook, and um, immediately, what was really interesting is had very good things to say about the hiring process, and uh, it just seemed like the vibe there was really good. And when I um, when I started thinking about my own, it's funny. Like I spent like three months just trying to find everyone a job, and then I was like. I remember being in a conversation with one company who will remain nameless and I was saying, you know, four great designers and and they're like, so for you, would you say you're still active as a designer or a hands-on designer? And I'm like, what's the right answer to this question? And I was honest. I'm like, to be honest, I, I would be much slower and less able than the rest of the team. And I just felt the conversation oh, get shit. very chilly. And I'm like, I've just talked myself out of a job. And so, I, when I got to the stage of actually looking for a job myself, it was pretty late in the day. And um, yeah, I was lucky to kind of meet a few people at Facebook and get into the hiring process and and then foolishly say no. I see. Which Well, it, yeah. it ended up coming, it ended up coming full circle. Yeah. Uh, the AR, VR line there is interesting as well. Like, yeah. Super interested in AR, and then you get to work on social VR at Facebook, yeah. which is a whole other unexplored space. Yeah. Um, how how was that experience? Did you get to discover the things you wanted to discover in that area? When I first started out, it was actually just uh, three sixty video. Um, so at that stage, the VR thing didn't really exist at Facebook. Obviously, at Oculus, they were building out that whole platform, and um, there was one designer on my team, and and the focus was actually building a three sixty camera. Uh, so Joyce, she is an industrial designer, yep. and she helped build it out. She was in my uh, vocal week group. No way. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, she's still there making magical things. And we were always thinking about VR. We were introducing more and more kind of 360 products, 360 photos, 360 audio. VR was a big part of it. And then they hired um, a few gaming industry folks from places like EA um, to start up social VR, um, but there was no design team. And in Facebook, we were the only design team that really had expertise in in VR and 360. So we ended up helping boot up the design part of that organization. But it was a really crazy time because 360 was really nascent and social VR was in a purely experimental phase. And so we were having to define what the product was, how Facebooky was it going to be, um, you can imagine every decision was a difficult and fraught one. So uh, that ended up becoming Facebook Spaces that we announced at F8 a year or two ago. And yeah, it was pretty incredible. I, I remember always saying to the team, no matter how it works out, this is probably the one of the few times in your entire career where you will get to do this bit. We're at a major, a big company. You will get to make the first of yeah. type thing. The foundational. And that got us through a lot of hard times. <laughs> Just I going see. back to that mantra. Interesting. Yeah, so it was wild. Uh, and so how, how long did you do that for? I ended up doing that for about two years. Yeah. And then a few organizational changes happened. And basically at that time I had video, 360, social VR, had a, um, and we had to kind of split out those worlds. And uh, I decided to go with the video world at that stage. And not to make a commentary on Facebook's stance on this, but where are you feeling as far as your excitement of AR and VR? Like, are, are you perhaps maybe not as excited as you once were, especially at the startup days? I guess um, what 
what I look, what I think is really amazing about VR is that it is the closest analog I can think of in our experience is lucid dreaming. In a lucid dream, you know you're awake, you know you're dreaming, and what makes it incredible is that you have a sense of agency over your dream. And I think for a lot of people, lucid dreaming is one of the highlights of their life. They can remember the time they flew in a dream, and VR at its long arc promises a form of lucid dreaming, but doing it in a collective way. And I can't imagine a more interesting design problem than that. I, I mean, I literally can't. I think AR, I feel like that goes on a different trajectory. It, it sort of goes towards theater, novels, music. AR, I think, goes towards ubiquitous computing. It is incredibly interesting in its own way as the information layer through which we see the world. But I actually see them as quite bifurcated. I'm equally interested in both, but the romantic side of me... I just find the idea that in 50 years' time, we'll still be throwing every piece of hardware and machine intelligence at that lucid dreaming thing. I guarantee it'll still be happening. Like, I feel like that that's just going to be there forever. So, Do you want to keep working on that at some point? I'd like to go back to it. <coughs> yeah. And that's one of the reasons I was a little bit more peaceful about being not in VR and AR for a while is, you know, it's a 50-year hundred year problem, not a five year race to see who can be anointed VR AR designers. Like I see. plenty of time. I think there's probably designers who are worried about missing that boat. Yeah, I, I get that. Picking up the skills or or becoming sort of yeah. domain experts. I, I understand that. And definitely in the design industry as it stands today, there is a lot of importance placed on being on something that is modern and where a lot of the big investment areas are. But scooters. Scooters, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Chief scooter design. But I mean it's like it's like being in the early stages of the Industrial Revolution and we're all uh what would our <laughs> we're, we'd all be engineers and we'd just be learning about pistons and steam and being really freaked out we're going to miss out on the steam age and child labor laws <laughs> it was a, and looms <laughs> uh, I just think I don't think we're going to miss out I think there's a lot of and I also think the tools that people are wrestling with right now are going to seem as archaic as the tools that uh, I guess proto-industrial designers had in the early industrial revolution a lot of cotton gins to be built yeah yeah a lot of looms to be built. So, you know, I don't think you're going to miss out. Okay. To people that are interested in that, where should they start? I Knowing that the tools that they learn today are going to be so, so antiquated in a short period of time. The thing that will be valuable for a really long time in those fields is spatial design and spatial interaction. So, while learning Unity or Unreal or getting into the tool side is important, I think learning the history, norms, and principles of spatial design, you're probably much better to geek out on exhibition design, architecture, industrial design, and go deep on that stuff and not be as worried. And, and game, actually game and level design, than being worried about whether you're up to date with Unity and Unreal. Yeah. Um, the hard thing is actually thinking in three dimensions and and being able to des- to find a balance between space, interaction, environment, audio, and they're all classic problems of architecture, interior design. It's a good amount of time to like consider there as well. Like I find yeah. that that's a problem that 
uh, when you start working on like film, yeah. animation, any of that stuff, like you start having to think about that a lot. Yeah. But I can imagine where it's interactive on top of that, that seems particularly intense. Yeah, yeah. Bra- just the whole concept of branching narratives, which mm-hmm. you know, gaming has down. Yeah, I, I kind of, I think that you know, my one of my old creative directors used to say that when in doubt, go and do a bit of art history. Like there's always, someone's always wrestled with what you're wrestling with. And I think particularly in AR and VR, there's a lot of prior art and prior design thinking that maybe we don't recognize as such. And that's such a great investment. If you want to get into it, um, some of the best VR designers were architects and industrial designers because they came pre-programmed with understanding aesthetics at scale, understanding how to make human movable spaces, uh, gaming design a similar thing. So you're not going to miss out. Awesome. Train hasn't been built. Yeah. Let alone left the station. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, what keeps you up at night these days? Keeps me up at night. Um, Lucid dreaming. <laughs> I wish that kept me up at I, night. I don't think that can keep you up. I think that's the whole point. <laughs> it is pretty amazing, though, how profound of an experience it is. I, I remember I've had yeah. one and I can remember it uh, yeah. super well. Our theory used to be if someone came to you and said, hey, whenever you want it, I think that would be one of the most desirable products you could imagine. Um, that's scary to me. Really? Why, why is it like scary? A, uh, I think people are drawn to escaping sure. the trials it's and tribulations total of recall, right? day-to-day life. There's always going to be a dystopian yeah. outcome for any form of technology. But I mean, that's the whole debate in VR right now, yeah. right? Is like, do you side on the optimistic, this is going to connect the world and reshape education and information and creativity? Yeah. Or is it going to lead to this dystopian escapism of people living in a garbage decaying world right. to pursue their own right. animal craving of, of lucid control, right? <laughs> what keeps you up? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it'll two things that, It'll be both. The future is never utopian or dystopian. It always tends to be both. And there's so much driving the dystopian outcome you're describing that has nothing to do. Virtual reality would be in a dystopian form that you've spoken about, would be an outcome shaped by much larger forces. And if headsets weren't there, it would be that outcome would be shaped by something else because I think the need, the problem is there. So in that mindset, then the only, the most rational, hmm, perhaps the most rational thing is to be an optimist if you think that the bad things are going to happen no matter what. So I might as well be optimistic about Hmm. the potential positive impact on, on the world that VR might have. I think we we always have to be optimistic so as not to be crippled with the depression that comes from thinking about bad outcomes. <laughs> I, I'm maybe not in fan of, I'm not saying necessarily be optimistic or pessimistic, but understand what is happening and that anyone who's working in the design field right now, be it AR, VR, machine learning or anything, you're all making intentional choices that are wiggling the line back and forth towards those outcomes. And I think you should probably feel that responsibility um, no matter what you're working on. I think you've, to be honest, I think with virtual reality, the technology is a fair way away to, at 
to sort of embrace some of those negative outcomes. But it's a good thing for designers working in the field to read their speculative fiction and go, think okay. about the ethics of this thing and like yeah. figure out what the jurisprudence will be. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say the same for all designers. In fact, it's easier in VR, AR, and machine learning because you have these omnipresent cultural touchstones that show you the bad outcome. I think a lot of people working in design in more, in inverted commas, mundane fields don't understand how mundanity can lead to just as dystopian outcomes. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think the, I don't think there's any particular burden on people in those fields. They just probably have better signposts. But if you're working on, you know, faster delivery services. Yeah. It's still a yeah. I mean, you can make it. so many of the same criticisms of of any two D screen designed right product today, yeah. especially social products. Yeah, that have a lot of the same fears there yeah. of being a tool for escape. Yeah, and an addicting one at that. Right. I think the positive side, though, that of the counter note to your dystopian yeah, yeah. one is that for so many people in the world, appearance where they are physically located and what comes with the non-virtual is such a burden for them. Like there is, a, I think for a lot of people, this will be so freeing, even if for an hour or in a particular context that gives them a chance to talk about and be something that is not encumbered by all of those social burdens of gender, race, ethnicity, age, location, I think it sounds a, like a drug. <laughs> I mean, it's a luxury for us to be worried about the escapist pleasures. Yeah. For a lot of people, hell yeah. Like, I would like an hour where someone isn't thinking about me in this way because of these factors. So, if you look at the scale of 7 billion people, you'd argue the majority of people are bearing a burden where society says because of some visible, audible attribute, that's not for you. And so maybe that does make me optimistic. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think, I, and that's kind of what I would be interested in really unpacking. And also in, in dreaming, I think we tend to go to a lot of the fantasy escapist outcomes. There's a natural correlate with gaming, science fiction. But I think most people's lucid dream fantasy is actually more mundane than that. It's like lovely and simple. It's like, I wish I hadn't have said that. Or I wish I could go back to that time. And when you have the rise of things like photogrammetry, I think you What's may that? be much more inclined to go back to when you were seven and feel something that you can't feel anymore. I think that will be much more compelling than putting on your plus seven shield of protection and, and fighting warlocks. I don't know. That I'm, sounds pretty dumb. <laughs> no, like, I... I think maybe we don't see the other side because the technical barriers to reconstructing memories is is problematic. But there are people who are going to be growing up in five years' time who will have photogrammetric capture of a lot of their lives. And they'll be able to go back to when they were knee high and they'll be able to go back to moments in their life. And maybe with the rise of machine learning, they'll be able to self-actualize an outcome that doesn't make them depressed or makes them feel more ready to solve problems. And that's incredible. I mean, that's the pharmaceutical industry, the psychology, psychiatry industry. That's 
yeah. hundreds of billions of dollars to help people deal with those moments. So I, I wonder whether we'll be less dressing up as uh, characters and more revisiting things that we do and trying to feel them again or do them a bit better because that's what you're doing in your head every day you yeah. wish you wish you'd said something different so i don't find that dystopian but also with a plus seven shield of protection i can get I mean, really close to that warlock they don't I have that know. many spell slots yeah. so it's like it's pretty yeah. chill i mean there'll always be that too but what what is that thing you're saying photogrammetry i've never heard that did just, i say that right yeah just essentially it's the technique of doing 3d reconstruction of environments by taking effectively hundreds of photos uh, and then taking the depth data that's associated with those photos, um, you know, for example, on an iPhone with two cameras, you can also extract the depth of that yep. scene. And that means that you can reconstruct a 3D environment that is also <coughs> built out of the the lighting and the pixels that were actually there. So if we if we had a very expensive 3D 360 camera in this room, we could reconstruct both the objects in 3D, but also all of the textures and the pixels that would make it seem reality. This is a very Iron Man 3 introduction, which I'm sure you'll get that reference because mm-hmm. you're a huge Iron Man fan. <laughs> Are we going to go there? No, we don't have to go there. Uh, but that was, Iron Man 3 is the worst one. That was the, the, am I thinking of the Actually, right Iron one? Iron Man 2 maybe. But At yeah, the beginning where he's doing, yeah, he like reconstructs the last conversation yeah. he had with his parents. Yeah. They're all the worst one. No. Come on. (laughs) That's not how comparative. (laughs) Yeah. But I won't I won't bait you on that one. So yeah, we we don't have to go. We don't have to to go down that road. Um but we still haven't answered uh what keeps you up at night. In the world, in my job, like all the above. Um probably the first thing that comes to mind seems like the most important thing. What keeps me up on to be honest, it is the world. I think I guess I had the luxury of growing up where things were getting better in terms of inclusiveness and understanding and access to information. And I guess it was the um, the whole post-war experience. And then in the last three to five years, suddenly some things that haven't been seen, at least in the West, have been happening all over the world, are coming back again which I think would normally not keep me up at night as much, although it does keep me up at night, if it wasn't for what's happening from an environmental point of view and feeling like the perfect storm of uh, a return to prejudice, insularity, at the same time of having a problem that absolutely demands the opposite of that and where the fix is not clear even if there is a fix so that really does keep me up at you night globalist coastal elite <laughs> I, know. I mean the coastal elites are gonna have the first problem right yeah um we'll be swimming soon yeah i just i don't we'll be ship-based elites I, <laughs> yes swimming with the fishes i find that much more paralyzing than worrying about a virtual reality dystopia is sort of knowing how to mentally i always have that there's always that historical precedent like what would you have done at this historical point in time with the knowledge that you have now? And we're all like, I'd totally be on the barricades. Yeah. And I'm like, what would you have done at this particular moment in time? Avocado toast mm-hmm. delivered to your door. Yeah. So that keeps me up at night, if I'm honest. 
I don't know how to hold that thought in my head and, and go about my day sometimes. God damn it, that avocado toast. I know. It'll get you through some tough times. <laughs> <laughs> Including not being able to st- sleep at That's night. my lucid dream. Just <laughs> yeah. avocado toast. Really? You know? Well, Although, I can't afford it in real life, so. Yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> you dream big. Dream yeah, big. I know. Yeah. You said mundane. <laughs> mundane things are always That's the best. That's Bryn's virtual reality dystopia. <laughs> just just a, an eternal amount of avocado on toast. Sure. I like or it. maybe... The avocado toast is just out of reach. Ooh, some kind of Greek myth. That's yeah. That's some fucked up shit, dude. Yeah, yeah I know. That should be like a torture setting in Westworld. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they program all it. So anyways, anyways, anyway. yeah, I kind of want that. Like, yeah. that's it's pretty good, but like, it's not going to fill me up or anything. But yeah. like, man, I could really, I could go for that. It's like yeah. right there too. It's oh the man, seg- the segue from this is going to be rough. There's, yeah, we could talk. Hang on. There, <laughs> We could come up with really interesting, um, like torture devices that are just on the brink of hey, discomfort. Brian, where? What are you doing? Okay, so <laughs> here's one. Yeah. Every meal you eat, mm-hmm. no matter how big or small it is, after you eat it, your stomach kind of hurts because you feel like you ate too much. You know. That is solid. <laughs> like, I've got one for you. Okay. Which low cost airlines? You have a funnel that comes from the ceiling, and it's just full of butter. go with me you have to swipe your credit card to stop the flow of butter (laughs) where's the butter going into your mouth unless you swipe the credit card low-cost airlines low-cost airlines not enough seat space so it's lap time oh lap time yeah they're they're selling double the number of seats so everyone has to sit on laps you gotta figure that all out i still think sharing an armrest is worse than what you've described there <laughs> at least lap time you could really just go with it but armrest sharing well you have to decide who's going to sit on the bottom and who's going to sit on top and that's yeah yeah that's that's rough armrest sharing is the worst because it's impossible to share horizontally mm-hmm. so you always share vertically and the person who gets their elbow in the the nook the back I, is always better off there's more stability in that that location yeah i'm a hardcore will not touch another person situation on planes so i'm just like yeah in tight got my switch <laughs> yeah also maybe living in the uk for seven years it triggers every british awkwardness mm-hmm. like bell is having to sort of gently push someone's elbow back <laughs> across the this other side. is mine <laughs> oh yeah yeah and I, your strategy i tend to find that works for about the first five hours and then you've pitted out you're, everything's locking up. You've yeah. got to push the elbow. I'm I'm a human pretzel. I'll just can, wrap myself up. I'm fine. Okay. <laughs> I'll lean very far forward. <laughs> yeah, just lean forward on your knees. Yeah. I actually feel like you're a closet armrest acquirer and you're just, you're maybe not oh, telling us the truth. If yeah. people are not in my row, I'm good. I will take all the armrests. Interesting. Fine. Well, yeah, but, that, that's not a problem though. Yeah. <laughs> What's your position with partners then? Is it armrest up and then share the same organic two speeds? No, big shaking of heads. Uh, we always put the armrest up. Unless armrest it's up? not one that doesn't go up. Oh, I, I enjoy the uh, the armrest not as a device for separation, but a device to like <laughs> to interact more um, Separately? with support. Oh, interesting. It becomes a support device, not a separation device. (laughs) They should re- It's really like relationship therapy as a physical (laughs) object. Yeah, it's like a Rorschach test or something. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to this. Yeah. The armrest test. Yeah. Uh, In the next podcast, we'll we'll Mm -hmm. really dig deep there. 
Yeah. Uh, but until then, thanks so much for coming and hanging <laughs> it's out. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, thanks Charlie. Gang. That was episode 255. Thanks so much to Charlie for hanging out with us. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you to Abstract for supporting the show. We hope you enjoyed everything. Before you go, be sure to go to goabstract.com and sign up for their free month. Don't, don't let this podcast end. There's only like 20 seconds left. Do not hit pause. Do not hit, hit Abstract first. Do not get pass there. go. Keep listening to this. We're, we're walking through it. Go to Abstract. Goabstract.com. Get on board. Sign up. For a... Wait, nope. Uh, Wait for the modal. Yep. All right. You're signed up now? Password. Cool. Username. Email. You're in. <laughs> uh, goabstract.com. Abstract's going to change the way that you and your team collaborate together by providing a secure version-controlled hub for your design files. Get started on that free month at goabstract.com. Thank you to Abstract. And we'll see you next week.